I'm delighted to welcome you to this National Book Award, uh, Book Award, Book Week uh, Symposium sponsored by the AAP and Penn with major support from the Lila Wallace Reader, Reader's Digest Fund. As you know, our topic tonight is the coming revolution in American bookselling. The 1980s were a period of unprecedented growth for American bookselling. Sales of general trade books at retail increased from $1.7 billion in 1982 to an estimated $5.2 billion in the year just passed. Pre-tax profits increased to an estimated $471 million in 1989 from $390 million the prior year. Feeding this growth was the continuing rapid expansion of book outlets. A survey conducted for the ABA showed that bookstores grew in number during the decade to a total of 17,620, a 76 percent growth rate, which among specialty retailers was exceeded only by fast food restaurants. Despite the economic gloom of recent months, there is every prospect that consumer book sales will continue to grow rapidly, an estimated 9 percent a year for the next several years, but for very different reasons. Growth driven by expansion of bookstore outlets will slow considerably because the mauling of America has effectively ceased. Growth in the 1990s will come from several sources. These include independent bookstores expanding and renovating their existing space to accommodate larger and broader inventories. National chain stores adopting a superstore strategy. Greater efficiencies due to computerization and the prevalence of an effective network of national wholesalers. Innovative new forms of marketing aimed at reaching targeted customer and consumer segments. New types of electronic information products that complement books. And finally, a greater degree of cooperation among writers, publishers, and booksellers in persuading consumers of the value of books over other forms of media. Also, the demographics are in our favor. Studies show that the American public is reading more than ever before. People are projected to spend an average, uh, an average of 20 more hours reading in 1991 than they did in 1971. And the 75 million baby boom population, the 28 to 45-year-old generation, is aging. They are entering a more sedate period of their lives, one in which reading plays an increasingly important role. The efficiencies due to technology should not, in my opinion, be underestimated. The, com the computerization of order generation, confirmation, inventory and shipping information, invoice preparation and delivery, and critically important point-of-sale data have enormous positive impacts on our business. These evolutionary changes, when taken together, add up to a revolutionary departure from the past publishing and bookseller practices. With our panel tonight, we will explore some of the most pertinent questions arising from this phenomenon. Let me introduce our panel. To my right, all the way to the right, is Ann Dilworth, president of Addison Wesley Publishing Company. Jack Heff, president of Bantam Doubleday Dell. Jack McCune, publisher of SNS Trade. Larry McMurtry, the president of Penn and a distinguished author. The distinguished Norman Mailer, former president of Penn. 
Brenda Mosh, Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing Development, Chairman of Books Group of HarperCollins, Joyce Meskus, President of the ABA, and Owner and General Manager of the Tatted Covered Bookstore in Denver, and David Schwartz, President of the Harry W. Schwartz Bookstores in Milwaukee. first question, which will be directed to Joyce Meskus, is that during the 1980s, independent booksellers were able to capitalize on the groundbreaking work of the chains in making books more easily available. Simply put, more people became accustomed to shopping at bookstores as the number of bookstore outlets increased dramatically. Will this trend continue, and what are the implications for publishers, writers, and booksellers? Well, while ground has uh, indeed been broken, uh, to be sure, as uh, the development of the Mauling of America occurred, and chains became fixtures in those malls, uh, subsequently demystifying the, the bookstore for those who might have been easily intimidated by the more traditional environment, and certainly <coughs> they did introduce many people to books. But as for the chains um, doing groundbreaking work in making books more easily available, I'm not quite so sure about that. And I have some questions about it. Um, I would say perhaps that it might be somewhat to the contrary, uh, that more books are easily available. Um, all books aren't, that's for sure. Certainly the chains popularized certain types of books. And publishing programs, uh, grew to feed that increased demand, creating at times a financial windfall, but all too often at the expense of other books. Such publishing also set a stage for the boom and bust, potential bust seesaw, raising expectations on advances, <coughs> print runs, and returns. As the base of chains stores expanded and they became more formidable competitors in general, one might argue that it's rather astounding at all that the independent booksellers in general uh, prospered in, in spite of them and not necessarily because of them. I see it more as a, a, a compatible, in many ways, uh, addressing of, of the marketplace. Sure, there was some crossover. Chains saw an opportunity and moved on it. Uh, there were readers to, to be fed books. <coughs> Concurrently, so did many independents uh, move on the opportunities, too. And a new generation of readers was born out of the 50s and the 60s, um, the readers that were much more predisposed to, uh, for all kinds of reasons, to buying books. I think historically, as an industry, we have vastly underestimated the capacity of the reading public. And what we see is the market at present uh, can definitely be expanded, and I expect it will be. The trend toward more and larger stores is likely to continue. Um, I think it bodes well for publishers, writers, and re certainly readers, while presenting some significant challenges to booksellers who are on the, on the margin and with the margin. Thank you. Anne, would you like to comment, please? Yeah, I, I think another interesting thing that happened during the 80s was not only the expansion of bookstores themselves, but the expansion of where <laughs> books were sold. Uh, I think uh, 10 years ago, you couldn't find books that easily in garden stores, pet stores, computer stores, uh, places like that. And I think that there are a lot more uh, available outlets for books than there ever have been before. 
This is particularly good um, and really only good for nonfiction books. I don't think there are additional outlets for fiction books. Uh, but a book industry study report said uh, just a couple of years ago that 45% of the sales of all books come from outside the bookstore uh, uh, sector. So I think that's a very important trend that, that will continue. One of the keys here in terms of publishers is how we can get to these new markets. Uh, books are uh, not uh, the most important thing in these stores, and they're sort of an add-on. So we need to find ways to effectively get the right merchandise in the store so they can work. Uh, I think the one other issue that's very important in this expansion of, of uh, uh, places to buy books is, uh, is the book buying public itself. Uh, if you look at uh, the baby boomers coming through, as Dick, Dick said, there's an enormous number of people coming through who are more likely to buy books. Um, but one thing that, that strikes me that I've said often is that uh, if I look at my own behavior, I buy just as many books as I ever used to. Uh, and I've always been a big book buyer, but I'm not reading as many. And I, I see a lot of people <laughs> nodding their heads. Uh, and I, I, I see that as a, as a real issue a, as we go forward. Uh, I think that uh, uh, the kinds of books that people are buying and the reading habits are, are going to be very important in the future in terms of uh, how publishers and booksellers and authors should work together to, uh, to get to readers. Thank you. Uh, Jack? Uh, and just to your point, uh, keep buying the books, please. Uh, you know, you might <laughs> who not cares have if you read them, right? Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's always fun to go third um, on a question uh, because many of the things that Joyce said I agree with, many of the things that Anne. I just think in, in trying to quickly zero in on this, I think that the, the bookstores or the booksellers are going to grow slower in the 90s than they have in the 80s. Um, but I think that the kind of bookstores that we're going to see, whether they're independent or chain, are totally different than what we've seen today. I think the superstore, for no better term, is the way of the future. Uh, we were talking about this earlier today. We called it that maybe some of these bookstores will almost turn into cultural lighthouses within communities. And I think that, that many of the strong independents that, let's say, survived the late 70s and 80s and have done well such as Joyce's store, David's stores in, in uh, Milwaukee, which have done well, uh, do have that kind of a reputation in their community. And I think that you're going to see more and more of that in, uh, I think, the 90s. I think there will always be room for the chain store, at least I hope so. And I think that there will be room because there are a lot of books that deserve a place uh, and a way for consumers to get a hold of them. So, uh, but I do see a slowdown in the 90s. Thank you, Jack. Could I make one more comment? Please. Um, I think we're also going to be seeing a lot of, of specialty store in involvement uh, in our industry. And I would um, ask some of my colleagues on the, the panel here what they're, what they're seeing. Are you, are you finding that there are indeed uh, more specialty stores? We are in, in the ABA. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, some of them have been mentioned, but I mean, uh, um, I guess years ago people might have said it was crazy to sell uh, garden <coughs> books in gardening shops, but uh, uh, we're seeing more and more that we're actually getting requests by uh, many specialty stores to begin to sell books. One of the difficulties is a cost-effective way of getting the books to them, um, which is always difficult if they, 
you know, carry one or two. I guess the idea in that case is possibly uh, getting them through their normal, uh, I guess for no better term, job or supply uh, as to how if they're a, um, a housewares type of store and they want to carry cookbooks or they want to carry uh, um, uh, coffee table books of some sort. Um, it's difficult for a publisher to get to them, but uh, the jobbers uh, potentially uh, uh, may even have another opportunity. Well, like that kind of specialty store, there's probably also just the specialty bookstore, and probably everybody sitting in this room knows about the specialty mystery store, science fiction store, and especially, I'm sure in the ABA, what you're seeing is the children's booksellers, which are their whole, a whole section of the ABA. And I think that's uh, been a very important part in all publishers' growth in the last few years. Certainly, I think it's been a big help in the um, children's book publishing world, just being able to have that specialty base of stores dedicated to just that kind of book has been responsible for a lot of growth. Thank you. We're going to skip now to the second question, uh, which is directed to David Schwartz. If the book marketplace is to continue to expand both in the number of retail outlets and the size of those outlets, increased profitability at the retail level will have to be generated. In the absence of net pricing, where is that profitability to come from, since ABA studies find a decrease in store profitability over the last few years? The ABA studies in the 1970s in terms of bookstore profitability were in the mid-70s. We didn't have any studies in the, in the late 70s or early 80s. By the time we, we begun to study the problem again, we found that the uh, dollars uh, brought to the bottom line had shrunk significantly. And in the three years of the most recent studies, we find that, in fact, that the pre-tax dollars, pre-tax profitability of bookstores on the average has shrunken by almost a point and a half. In, in my own case, uh, my pre-tax profit has shrunk from uh, 4.94 three years ago to 3.31 in this most recent year. That's pre-tax profit. Uh, I consider myself a reasonably intelligent bookseller, and yet uh, I, I, I'm wondering where am I going to uh, bring in investors to invest in my business when I can uh, bring them uh, that kind of profitability to the bottom line. I'm sure that the, the publishing element in this audience here uh, can sympathize with that, and I, I, as I read your own financial statements, I realize that, in fact, you do significantly better than I. Uh, so how, how, how are we going to uh, uh, address this issue? Uh, back in 1980, which is, the, the, I think, the very nadir of the booksellers, publishers, relations, uh, there were, since that time, there were a number of changes. Um, when we started uh, the Publishers Planning Committee, we went to the publishers and asked them what we could do for them, and they said, well, they'd like us to stop sending them uh, orders on, uh, on paper napkins. They'd like us to pay the bills in better than 126 days, and they'd like us to stop returning the backlist. Well, except for possibly stop returning the backlist, which we seem to have a pension for doing, I think we basically had done many of those things. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I see booksellers who've, com been, who've computerized themselves, and I see that uh, uh, we are paying our bills, and our average bills are now being paid in, in uh, 63 days. Uh, in, in my company, and that was a, that's a considerable difference from the past. Uh, uh, we've computerized ourselves, and we operate on a, on a business in a business-like fashion. You, on the other hand, uh, as publishers, gave us a significantly better discounts and gave us uh, uh, freight pass-through and now free freight. 
All of that, in fact, have been, uh, I think, been successful in, in turning around the independent bookseller and making us now a viable part of the marketplace. Uh, I had, in 1980, one store which is doing $900,000, and I have today six stores doing $5.5 million. So that's a success story. But in terms of the profitability, it's not a success story at all. So mm -hmm. how do we address that? Um, there are some things that, that we can do and that I am doing. Uh, where I'm integrating my, my computer system uh, with point of sale so that, in fact, I can want uh, books in at the, at the cash register and hopefully if the publishers will uh, allow me to, by m being more accurate in their shipping, I will be able to warn books in uh, upon receipt on the carton itself. Uh, that will save a considerable amount of money. Uh, I am uh, attempting to make my, uh, my cooperative advertising uh, <coughs> more successful by uh, spending more money on, uh, spending more of your money and less of mine. Uh, but at the same time, my rents are, are going up significantly, and if in fact, if I'm professionalizing my staff, which I intend to do, my cost of employee is going up as well. So I'm really, we're really stuck. Uh, I don't think that I can come to you and ask you for any more discounts, although I do think I can come to you and ask you for FOB Bookshop, which I hope that, uh, more of you will go to. Uh, but if in fact, we're going to make this a, uh, a, a more profitable business to bring more bookstores into this business, uh, we're going to do some, have to do something else. And at this juncture, I would, I'll end my statement by saying I think there's one thing that we haven't done, and that is uh, the whole subject of net pricing has been, has been buried. I, for one, speaking for myself as a relatively large bookshop <coughs> who has the capabilities, computer capabilities, would like to have net pricing. And I do think that's possibly an answer for us all. Brenda? Well, I never thought I'd see the day that David Schwartz and I would be so close in agreement. <laughs> no, I'm talking about how will the market expand uh, given uh, restrictions on profit. My comments really just are that I think there are very few book publishers who are achieving what they or their owners or their investors think are acceptable levels of profitability. So I don't think that the book marketplace can continue to expand both in number of outlets and size of outlets by digging into the publishers for more discount, freight, or co-op dollars. I don't think it's going to be very forthcoming in the next few years. I do believe that the profitability, though, that will allow for the increase in the marketplace or the growth in the marketplace will have to come at the retail level itself from the same sources that publishers are having to dig into ourselves, and that is tougher inventory management, Customer service, I think that's going to be the big word. Uh, it's already the big word. You can't pick up a newspaper or a magazine without reading about customer service, customer service. Uh, and I think also we're going to have to be more critical of our own advertising and promotion budgets, both at the retail level and in our publishing houses. And I guess we have to, are going to have to be more criti critical about what we're buying, not only the books we buy, but the services that we buy. And I think that what we're going to see in the next few years, and the booksellers will speak better than I do, are booksellers making real serious choices about the vendors that they do business with, about whether they're doing business with a publisher or whether they're doing business with a wholesaler. And I think all of this is going to be part of uh, just examining where is your profit and how can you get more. Because I think uh, the only way to growth is having more money, and I think together we've got to find ways to get it and hope that to the extent that we're able, we can share it among ourselves. Jack, do you agree with that? Uh, in part, I think if you were to uh, <coughs> to poll the uh, the publishers in the audience, and certainly 
the booksellers that they sell to, you would find a very divided opinion on the subject of net pricing. And I don't think uh, that would be a situation that would resolve itself anytime soon. Um, however, I do think in agreement with Brenda that a longer term solution really does boil down to the question of how do we sell more books, more units to the high frequency book buyer in this country, convince them that the books are a worthy purchase, a worthy place to put their consumer dollars as opposed to other forms of media. They're out there competing for, for those same dollars. I think better inventory management through computerization is one answer. But in terms of targeting those consumers, I've been very impressed of late with uh, what Walden was able to accomplish through their preferred readers program. Harry Hoffman shared some figures with me recently that were quite impressive, that the average preferred reader customer was spending upwards of $12 more on each visit to a store than the non-preferred reader customer. And I think through very targeted promotion, uh, management and segmentation of your database, learning more about your consumer, being able to adapt promotions to the wants of those consumers, you will be able to sell more books in the long haul. And I think finally, ultimately, that's where the profitability is going to come, both for publishers and for, and for booksellers. And I think that profitability is where that money can then in turn be in reinvested in the bookstores to help them grow so that they do become, as Jack Heft pointed out, the cultural lighthouses for the 90s. And uh, fortunately, that would help to bring in more customers as well. Jack, would you agree that trade book publishing is inherently an uh, inefficient business? Absolutely. <laughs> so Absolutely. That, that yeah, he'd be disagree with you, Dick. Don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It was the other Jack I meant. Um, that's where some of your profitability is going to come in, which can then go into advertising promotion. I think, I think information increasingly is a commodity that has to be viewed as, uh, as an economic uh, entity in and of itself. And as publishers looking forward to the uh, 90s, I think our ability to tap into the same database information that the better booksellers in the chains are uh, accumulating through uh, their computer systems is a wave into greater efficiencies and greater profitability for us. There's no question about it. Uh, our ability to get that information, manipulate it, uh, run reports, do some distribution modeling about how we advance our books, uh, figure out where books are selling so we can target regional promotions that are effective, and being able to measure the impact of those promotions is the wave of the future. And I think it's a technological solution, but one that is very compatible with the way we do business. It's a friendly solution in that it works for both bookseller and publisher. And I think it is the long run uh, wave of, uh, of benefit for the future in terms of uh, 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 really a win-win situation for everybody involved. Thanks, Gary. Render, uh, more than 1,500 independent bookstores currently have some form of computer system to administer cash register sales, inventory tracking, returns, and order processing. The number is certainly to, uh, is certain to grow dramatically in the 1990s. What are the implications for publishers, authors, and booksellers? How, much how must expectations change regarding print runs, the number of initial copies purchased by bookstores? Well, the simple answer for that is I think that we will be printing fewer copies of books by and large. I think uh, right now with all of the bookstores out there able to track sales at the cash register, we're getting the kind of feedback that is allowing us to print very tight to what we would expect to sell on a book. And I think it's um, putting forward a very interesting new way of thinking in the publishing house. I'm not so sure it's a new way of thinking or a new slant on an old way of thinking. But uh, now that we're getting this very sophisticated feedback, we find ourselves with much more information 
about where books are at the time we actually have to press the button to print a book. And I think that we sit there holding in our hands a number, and that number reflects an order that the bookseller has placed that he expects to sell right away. We then print a reasonably small quantity because we're talking about this number that we have in our hand that is very scientific. And uh, I find myself sitting in my own house with this scientific number and printing very close to it, and sure enough, I'm ending up out of stock. And I don't know where this long speech of mine is going, except to maybe be a little bit provocative. I think that uh, as publishers, with all the scientific information in the world that we have, all the very close-to-the-cuff information that we have, we're still having to guess many times on how many to print. And uh, we are always in danger of not being able to catch very fast sales. Uh, you sort of print your expectation and your projection, and you get stuck. And in a way, I guess this is what will uh, separate publishers in the future. Not only how much do you pay for a book, but how well do you guess on what your first printing is going to be. Actually, I think um, the feedback is so scattered right now. We're still in a situation where our source of supply is twofold. You, we get orders from the retailer. We get orders from the wholesaler. There's still a tremendous amount of guesswork. I think we're all building new histories in our houses for the categories and the way that they sell. And I think new track records on books are being invented every day. And so I guess that's all by way of saying that the technology can't come fast enough. It's only a one-way street right now. We do get orders that we can judge from our customers. We're still not in a situation where we can talk back to those orders and try and respond to them and print books quickly to them. And uh, that's quite a mouthful. I guess I think some things don't change as much as they change. David. Uh, I think that things have changed actually significantly, Brenda. I, in my, my situation, uh, I guess you could say it's the demise of the macho buyer. <laughs> at, at one time, I felt that my whole you know, uh, purpose in, as the bookseller was to be able to buy large quantity of books, larger quantity than my neighbor could, uh, and I felt comfortable and good about that. Uh, I, uh, the bank no longer allows me to do that. Fortunately, with a computer system uh, and with... Uh, Edward Deming, I had the opportunity to learn some different methods of doing business, and I, those methods are being imposed upon you, the publishing community. Uh, I'm really buying on a, a just-in-time basis, and I think that it's had an enormous impact on, on, on this industry. It's had an enormous impact on me. Uh, my inventory turn is, has gone up by uh, better than, than two whole points in the last three years. Uh, that puts enormous dollars in my pocket. That's allowed, that has, what has allowed me to pay my bills, and it somewhat has allowed me to deal with expansion. But in fact, that poses a tremendous burden upon you. I will only buy what I think that I can sell within a short period of time, and then we'll ask to reorder that. And I'll go to the best possible source for the reorder. I'll go to the publisher who gives me the speediest service and the freest charges and delivery and the best advertising dollars. If I can't do that, I'll go to the wholesaler. And I've driven my wholesaler business from 15% of my business last year to 27% this year, and I will do more unless the publisher intervenes. Some publishers are intervening, and I'm going to them continually. Uh, you know, there have been any number of different programs that you have suggested, which I've taken advantage of. Uh, but we'll, we'll do more of that. So I think that in terms of developing a rationale for the business, that just-in-time uh, buying is developing that rationale. And I, I think it's working, and it will continue to work. Thank you, Jack. McCune. Well, I, I just want to uh, affirm something that Brenda said. I think uh, there's no question that publishers are going to be printing tighter and tighter into the next decades uh, uh, as a result of all the 
developments at retail, primarily computerization that allows the individual uh, book buyer to look up on screen and see exactly what the track record has been for a particular author or for a particular category of books. And that's, that's an inhibiting factor on print runs. However, along with that uh, need to be more conservative on, on first printings, I think there's a concomitant responsibility that devolves onto publishers, and that is to be quicker and smarter, smarter about uh, managing the reorder business. Uh, if we're going to uh, sell this policy to ourselves, to our authors and agents, uh, and ultimately to the, to the consumers, uh, we're going to have to ensure that we are encountering fewer and fewer outer stocks on both fast-moving titles and also on backlist steady sellers. Uh, I think the wave to make that happen is to be more in touch with actual demand, and again, <coughs> hearkening back to the computerization <coughs> effort that is happening at uh, retail, we need to tap into that information base. Now, at Simon & Schuster, I think we've made a, a giant leap forward uh, through uh, a recent uh, participation in a data retrieval service called MPD, which for the first time, we think, will really give us a, a model that we can use both in monitoring uh, current titles and also as a predictor, a forecaster of uh, a future demand around which we can build some of our distributions. It's not a panacea and it's not going to be an answer for every, every title and it's certainly not going to remove the serendipity from our business, which of course is one of its major attractions. Um, but at the same time, as I said, there's a responsibility that is going to uh, uh, come upon every publisher that, uh, that prints tighter and is more conservative about their inventory exposure to make sure that their systems, and that includes their warehousing and fulfillment systems, are able to turn around faster and get the books printed and get them out the door and into the hands of the customers. Now, that may be uh, the wholesaler channels for supplying uh, quick-breaking titles, but in the long run, uh, the benefit of that will be to uh, ensure that we can do more direct business, reorder business, with our uh, independent booksellers and chains so that we can shore up our margins. Well, that leads us to the next question which is regional and national wholesalers are battling to control the bookstore reorder business, competing on price now as well as service. This means diminishing margins for publishers because of the higher discounts wholesalers receive versus reorders that come directly from bookstore to publisher. Jack Heff, will publishers ultimately be forced to abandon direct order fulfillment to small bookstores? I hope not, Dick. Um, I want to answer this probably in two ways to sort of as how I see it and then to be a little controversial uh, and sort of turn it around maybe on the booksellers. But uh, it is true that uh, uh, for the profitability uh, of a publisher, uh, one of the keys obviously uh, with a large sales force is a strong backlist and a strong backlist uh, ordering uh, procedure direct from us as the question stated. Uh, wholesalers, distributors uh, do receive a higher discount than, than retailers for the functions that they perform for publishers. Um, and I think that uh, it's, it's uh, in large part uh, the, the fault of many of the publishers uh, in the standpoint that uh, you can't blame a customer or a retailer um, wanting to order a, a 10 or 12 or 14 week supply of a particular title uh, when if they're dealing with a jobber they can keep a, a week supply or a two week supply or a three week supply and as David has talked his turns and uh, as uh, our retailers get more sophisticated uh, because of the computer uh, information uh, these things are going to become important factors publishers to maintain large sales forces to give the kind of services we need are going to have to develop the services um, to satisfy 
the demands and the needs of the retailer. Um, so I'm sort of twisting it around a little bit. I think I have to put it on the publishers um, to stay competitive if we are going to offer those kind of services to our customers. But I'd like to just throw out a thing, uh, and maybe someone will pick it up, is that possibly um, maybe the real issue is that will small bookstores abandon us, us the publisher, in other words, and deal directly with a particular local or national jobber. Uh, it might be easier for them, whatever. Um, and by doing that, potentially, as the question stated, uh, some services that maybe bookstores use that publishers offer, offer today may not be available because of cost, et cetera, um, uh, in the future. Joyce? Well, but the, the books, the jobber does not stock all of the titles, and therein uh, is, is the problem. The bookseller is beset day in and day out by an incredible amount of minutia, which is incredibly expense-intensive and, and uh, eats away at the bottom line. You know, as a bookseller, I want to be able to supply books to my customers uh, accurately, uh, efficiently, and very, ra and very rapidly. And I feel sort of stymied every step of the way. Um, I, used to I, I used to dream about it, and I still dream about it. You know, what can be done? And I, this isn't a new idea. It didn't originate with me. But I, I sort of have this thought about a warehouse in the sky, you know, that's going to stock absolutely every single book. And probably it ought to be better located in Kansas, so it's sort of central for, for all of us. And I thought, why not have this giant warehouse with absolutely every title in it and then have some uh, distribution points around it throughout the country, uh, maybe uh, competitive <coughs> distributors to keep the competitive tension going. Well, it's a pipe dream, some might say. But as a bookseller, I've got to say that uh, if I don't stay profitable, um, I can't s continue to sell your books as, as publishers. And we've really got to think very seriously about what I consider to be one of the biggest issues in our industry, and that is the, dis the distribution. We're all being killed financially by the inefficiencies of small shipments and daunting paperwork. And we still need to nurture this, the small bookstore, the small press book, the author who is new and who is only going to sell a, a a few thousand copies at best. How do we do it? Well, having cost-effective, efficient distribution um, has got to be a key. And that, again, um, if we can make it efficient, uh, frees up the funds to get the sales force out there and present the books to the, the booksellers who are very anxious to sell your books to a reading population who's very anxious to have them. And in your response, would you just kind of comment on what you think the trend is, which way it is going? Yeah, I, I was just going to say that I think this is obviously an important issue for publishers. But I think uh, talking about Addison Wesley a little bit is instructive. Although Addison Wesley is a very large publishing company, the trade operation within Addison Wesley is relatively small. I would say we're sort of a medium-sized trade publisher. Uh, so we can't put the number of uh, sales representatives in the field that Jack can, either Jack can or Brenda can or anybody else. 
So because of necessity, we have already ceded uh, some part of our market to the wholesalers. Uh, and actually, I think it has worked out very well. And I think that publishers have to get a little real on this. I mean, if, if uh, book, bookstores can get uh, books, especially books that are running o overnight, and it takes them some uh, period of time to get them from a major publisher, I think it, we have to expect that they are going to go to the wholesalers. The real issue there is how can you sell your whole line to a bookstore? And after all, the wholesalers aren't <coughs> salespeople. So I think it's important to work effectively together with the wholesalers to go into some part of the market where, uh, where people can't reach. And I th we're doing a study right now to see how cost effective this is. But I, I would hazard a guess that in some of the larger houses even, uh, if you look at the sort of bottom third or bottom fifth of your customers and, and uh, see what the trade-off is between fielding a, a rep and all the services that you would have there versus the extra points that you give to a wholesaler. Uh, I'm not sure it wouldn't be uh, at least a wash and maybe not too bad. Jack, Jack McCune, you kind of agree with that? Well, in part, but I do think there are tactical things that publishers are doing and can do into the future to try to maintain um, their universe of customers uh, at an even keel. And one of this is a more creative use of uh, of in-house coverage, such as telemarketing operations, which can be very, very effective. Uh, at Simon & Schuster, we've seen dramatic results of, as a result of our telemarketing operation, which we've expanded uh, um, um, dramatically in the last 12 months. And I think um, that and a reorientation, perhaps in, in part, on the, of the sales rep's, rep's function can mean that we can service accounts and necessarily not be so absorbed with the push pushing in of new of new product and focus more on the reorder business as and the long-term backlist uh, business where we know our, uh, our primary profitability uh, lies. And I think, so there is a, there is, I, at least I would hope, a happy medium, a solution to this that would not result in the absolute abandonment by publishers of, uh, of the lower fifth of their account base. On, on, on the other hand, uh, would not lead to those, uh, those bookstores feeling that the wholesaler is their only resort. Jack Heft, uh, what would happen to the profitability of Doubleday? Uh, if uh, this trend continued and basically you were a wholesaler-driven distribution system? Well, I mean, immediately uh, uh, the profitability would be, would be cut uh, by the differential between what we say is retail terms and distributor terms. Uh, on the other hand, as Ann said, there would be some savings. Uh, I've always had a feeling, though, that uh, uh, controlling your own destiny and sending your own message uh, is very important. Uh, no one can really sell uh, a book like the editor of the book, and I think maybe you could move it down a couple steps to the salesman, but when you had a professional sales force uh, out there uh, selling as, uh, out of Kansas, as uh, Joyce was saying, I think that you would lose something, especially in that first-time author um, that maybe what we might call hard-to-sell uh, type of, of novel or uh, uh, book, um, I think it would it would hurt us dramatically because I think that our overall business would be affected. Um, and um, I know I have not yet spoken anything about our company, but we are doing things to try to speed this up. I mean, we have quick delivery programs. We've had telemarketing programs. We are doing a number of um, uh, programs uh, to speed up our delivery to the bookseller. 
But Dick, to answer your question, I think it would hurt our profitability. Right. But see, I think it's clear that uh, with the growth of the wholesalers, it's clear that they're fulfilling a function that the publishers have not been fulfilling. And I think unless we get our act together, uh, the wholesalers are going to take it over. So, I mean, I think there are two things. Either publishers have to get going and, and uh, provide some of the services the wholesalers are. And secondly, I think that we do need to work more effectively with the wholesalers. I think they can be partners with us to get the books to, uh, to uh, bookstores, too. Just one last thing. I mean, wholesalers, as Anna's saying, I, I think many of them do a fantastic job. I wish our delivery systems were as good uh, from, from our company. But on the other hand, in communicating the message of the book to our customers and ensuring that it is handled and the dealing with author, authors at, uh, at signings, uh, dealing with publicity releases, breaks in a particular town. I mean, you know, we do sell a lot of books west of the Hudson River. And it is difficult to and expensive to get people out there. And if we don't, as publishers, I think we're going to lose a lot of the overall business because a second party, no matter how good they are, it will be less. Let alone closing off the window back to you. That's right. I mean, I think uh, one thing about controlling your message, but just hearing from that customer. I mean, I think probably everybody in this room has some experience of closing off your window onto the library market. I think a lot of us abdicated that, and we don't know what the heck is going out in libraries anymore. It's a and dangerous think, situation. Uh, it's a tough situation mm -hmm. and one that we need to watch out for, and all the more reason why distribution has to be a priority in every publishing house. Okay. Now we come to the great unanswered question of publishing. Okay. Return product is the bane of the industry. There's a new statement, 30 years. It's a policy that causes bookstores to overstock certain titles, thus taking up valuable selling spaces. Authors end up watching publishers hold a reserve against returns, and publishers have the added burden of paying to destroy product that the retailers couldn't sell, not to mention what returns do for books, prices, and profits. What makes this insidious problem so seemingly insurmountable? If anybody has an answer to that question, I'd like to <laughs> tell it to me privately, and I'll just make a lot of money. <laughs> um, since Jack McCune won't tell it to me, at least you can comment on it. Well, maybe I can just give you some of my personal thoughts on what I think uh, are some of the underlying issues in, in the area of returns. One, at the, very, at the very basic level, I think it is uh, a risky business that we're engaged in. Uh, we publish uh, well uh, in excess of 45,000 to 50,000 new titles every year. Uh, we, uh, on any single buy-in decision, you may have uh, five to 6,000 plus individual buyers accumulating <coughs> decisions, any one of which is prone to be uh, 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 an over-distribution for their particular uh, consumer demand. All these factors add up to uh, the inevitability of returns as a, as a form of insurance against books that actually do start to sell for us. Um, that's, a, that's a very basic level. However, something, something very um, dramatic happened in this industry. I, when I entered the business, the average hardcover trade return uh, was somewhere in the area of 19 to 20 percent in the middle 70s. Uh, we are now looking at uh, average trade hardcover returns on front lists that uh, are beginning to approach, uh, in the late 80s, began to approach the kinds of levels that we experienced on mass market paperbacks. Uh, probably the clearest example of that phenomenon, of course, was the so-called mass marketing of hardcover best-selling titles, where in the, in the trade-off between increased sales uh, and increased distribution and, and increased shelf space exposure at the bookstore level, trade publishers made the decision um, 
not so conscious a decision, but one that crept up on them and certainly uh, one that was adopted broadly, uh, a trade-off that uh, figured that those enhanced sales were worth the added returns exposure that was falling to the bottom line. And it was a trade-off that, for the most part, uh, worked through the middle part of the 80s, in part fueled by the explosive growth in retail outlets that we experienced in the 80s, uh, in large part driven by the chains, uh, uh, the so-called mauling of America. What we didn't anticipate is that mauling would, uh, would cease, would effectively peak sometime in the middle 80s. And what publishers are engaged in right now is a very, very um, painstaking uh, uh, attempt to catch up with what's really going on out there in the retail environment. And that is the fact that uh, we can no longer abide 30 to 40 percent returns on our hardcover front list. It simply is putting too great a squeeze on our profit margins. As, as other costs creep up, as other forms of inefficiencies in our business become apparent to us, those kinds of returns can no longer be absorbed because we don't have the same phenomena driving sales that we did in the middle part of the 1980s. Now, there are some things that are actually happening now which are starting to turn that situation around. Computerization is, is, is one of them. Although it's resulting in, the, uh, in certain restriction on our ability to sell books in, uh, in the same way that we used to, uh, particularly with the independent accounts, the better independent accounts that are computerized, uh, on the back end, it's probably helping us reduce our returns exposure by making us better publishers and smarter publishers about how we print and distribute initially. Uh, making us look at every uh, cranny, nook and cranny of our business to try to be more efficient about what we do and how we get books out the door and where they go and how we target our very limited marketing resources so that they are used in the most effective way. Ultimately, of course, I think the solution, and I, I think there is a solution, is a technological one, and it will be some form of printing on demand. The fact is the only way you get returns out of the business is to eliminate, eliminate the need for uh, big inventories. And uh, it's happened in the newspaper industry with, uh, with regional manufacturing sites for the likes of the Wall Street Journal and the National Edition of the New York Times. I think ultimately there will be abil ability to, uh, to print on demand, maintain very modest levels of inventory, uh, both at the bookseller and at the wholesaler level, and to be, be able to replenish books through a, a, some kind of combination of regional printing uh, that gets books closer to the consumer and, and eliminates the bottleneck. Now that could be uh, decades off, it could be 10 years off, who knows, but ultimately I think there is a technological solution. Maybe the authors have a solution to this problem. Larry? I don't. <coughs> oh, well, it's the longest I've been silent in years. <laughs> I uh, Used to love being a mouth turn either. Right now, it's all right. I used to love being. Can you hear me? Yep. No. Yeah. yeah. I used to love being a maverick in situations like this, until I was president of Penn. I've got to ask Larry McMurtry whether he feels <laughs> the same way. But about five years ago, we had a uh, Penn Congress, an international congress, with a wonderful theme called the imagination of the writer versus the imagination of the state. And we invited something like 30 or 40 distinguished writers, all at the cost of pen, the money we'd raised and all that. And they all uh, ended up standing up there and very proudly saying, the state, it has no imagination. So at that time, I said, I really hate mavericks. I really hate people who don't stay close to the given. <laughs> but I'm having a tough time here tonight because I feel like a Catholic at a convention of Baptists. <laughs> 
I, I simply don't know what you're talking about. I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up with the mystery. Uh, as I grew up, the, uh, I made a count as everyone was speaking, and I must have heard the word computer used 100 to 150 times. <laughs> I did not hear the word literature used once. Now, obviously, you're all good, serious people, and we practitioners of literature could hardly do without you. So I don't want to be snide about it, but it seems to me that there's a, that in the legitimate concern that you all have with marketing and the many intimate problems they raise, you're ignoring uh, a word that's terribly unfashionable today. You're ignoring the dialectic, which is that the nature of the computer is to turn things inside out. And if you want to solve all these problems, the way to do it ultimately, and I can foresee it in 20 years or 30 years if things keep going in the same way they're going, although they never will, because thank God there's boom and bust. But if they kept going the way they were going, what would happen eventually is you'd start off with big advertising campaigns in television to ask the American public what kind of novels they want to read, <laughs> et cetera, what kind of nonfiction they want to read. You'd have various kinds of polls made. On the basis of that, you then ask them which writers you wanted to write the books, and then you'd ask them to subscribe in advance so there'd be no returns. I like that. That's called direct mail, Norman. We <laughs> <laughs> like that. I think Osama Shusterov should know the answer to that question. <laughs> let me let me just say that I think <laughs> the oh, speak up. <laughs> <laughs> No, I second everything Norman said. I was just going to point out that that very system was tried at the beginning uh, of commercial publication of poetry in the 18th century. When Alexander Pope translated the Iliad, the Odyssey, it was subscribed to. The booksellers knew exactly how many they were going to sell. It did become something of a bestseller. They had to have a, there was a fancy edition and a cheap edition. But it has been tried, just not on the scale that it would have to be tried on today. <laughs> Uh, I agree with what Norman said. I have two points to make. I, became, I was a reader before I was a writer, and I loved remainder stores. And I think, of the remain, I think of the remainder store as an essential element in the food chain of literature. Lots of people can't afford the book at the full price, and they love remainder stores. Secondly, what Norman said about the computer, I also agree with. I came to Simon Schuster in 1968 with an immense novel called Moving On. Michael Carter, my editor these last 22 years, loved it. He made a very bad mistake. Moving On was the kind of lonesome dove of graduate school life. But nobody wanted to read a lonesome dove of graduate school life. And he then proceeded to make six more complete mistakes, six or seven. My first seven books at Simon & Schuster trundled right off to the remainder house. But the eighth didn't. He stuck with me, and one would hope there will be editors always who have the uh, courage to ignore their computers on occasion and go with their instincts. Thank you, Larry. Um, I'm afraid to ask the next question because the fifth word is computerized. <laughs> <laughs> It isn't that we don't care about literature, it's just that's not the subject of this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want, Norman, it can be. <laughs> I thought it just might have crept in once or twice Never. by accident. 
see here. If, uh, don't get mad now, Norman. If all bookstores are computerized, all, Norman, <laughs> independent as well as chains, and know exactly how many copies of an author's previous book they have sold, how can the publisher and the author compensate when marketing the, when marketing the next book? As publishers try to hold down first print runs to control returns, and as bookstores take a shallower stock position due to computer inventory, twice, how will this affect the way books are merchandised? Well, I think there's only one way one can protect against, uh, uh, you know, the backlist loss, not the backlist, but the one's previous books that didn't do well. And that's that you have to send out to the booksellers and, uh, a study of what happens to professional handicappers who use computers. <laughs> they generally are the handicappers who do m most poorly. You see, because computers in professional football, for instance, are built 90% on past performance. And they tend to come in less, they tend to be right less often than they would be if they flipped a coin. <laughs> Slightly less. That's, words, also, that's also true in the, the stock market. The coin comes in at fifty percent. Well, that's, that's true in picking stocks as well. They've proven the dartboard theory works as well as analysis. I, I didn't hear that. <laughs> the dartboard theory of picking stocks works as well as financial analysis. Yeah. All right. So it's the same theory. So I, I think at a certain point uh, there's going to have to be a spiritual revolution in book selling. If not, then we're going to end up. We're going to end up what we've always been, but it'll be worse. We're going to end up, everyone who's involved in publishing, from literature on to, to merchandising, mm -hmm. is going to end up being, as I say, what it's always been before, which is the weak sister of the film industry. Because what's going on in publishing now is almost identical to what's going on in film. The good small film that developed directors and actors and all that can hardly be made anymore. If a movie doesn't cost $50 million, they think there's something perverted about you when you come forward with but, the proposition. But a big difference uh, in the movie business. In the movie business, you have to put in tens of millions of dollars just to make a small picture. No, you the don't. The fact that independent publishers, small publishers, can get published at a very low comparative cost and get those books out there to all the big chains who will buy, regardless if it's a big publisher, small publisher, makes the industry very different, I think, than from the motion picture. Yeah, but industry. then they put it in the computer, and it's, it's hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> See, no one's denying uh, the fact that each book is different. It's the essence of, of our industry. What we are decrying and trying to figure out here today is right now we have economic turmoil in our industry, which seems to be accelerating. So the more the publishers and the booksellers can make this an efficient operation, the greater it is going to be for the benefit of good literature. And that's what the, the, this topic is tonight. It's not to ignore the value of the individual work. The publishing industry is all about authors and their books, nothing else. But in this case, it's rather inefficient. We're shipping them out, coming back faster than anybody. Everybody's facing the same thing. Booksellers lose money on returns. So this cycle is, as I think Jack McHugh pointed out, is accelerating. And the more it accelerates, you'll have less publishers, less bookstores, and you'll have less literature then. So why don't we try, Joyce, if you remember the question. Uh, <laughs> to answer it. Well, I sort of uh, remember the question. Um, I, I think that there has been, um, if not a spiritual renaissance, because I, I think that that spirit has already been there. There's been a renaissance of spirit in, in the bookselling community. And a computer is uh, viewed as a tool by, uh, by book buyers uh, in, in bookstores. 
it's not that one uh, looks at a computer screen and says, oops, that author's last book didn't sell. Um, that is a piece of information. But I hope that one, you would give us a little uh, credit that we do take each book individually, look at it individually, and information is the key, the information that's provided to the buyer in, in the bookstore. Um, as for the, back to the, the computer word, the C word here, um, I think it helps enormously to keep books in stock and to provide, continue to provide uh, good literature to, to the readers who are, who are out there. As far as the merchandising goes, uh, I, perhaps not buying as deep, um, David alluded to the macho buyer before, might make you think that the books might not be merchandised uh, quite as well if we buy smaller quantities. That may be true in some small measure, but I would suggest to you that it's all relative. That in fact, if you've got a, if a, a buyer is in the habit of buying deep across uh, the line of publishing for, for their bookstore, what have you got but a whole bunch of stacks of books, uh, none of which are merchandised in a particularly individual kind of way. And I think now we are seeing as good a merchandising uh, with uh, computers in, in our stores, if not better, uh, than we have in, in the past. And Brenda, uh, well, I was br actually, briefly. Uh, real briefly, what I would say is that to uh, if uh, bookstores are computerized and know exactly how many they're going to sell, how can we compensate for an author's next book? I think the answer to that is pretty simple. It's um, get creative, don't kid yourself, and Mr. Mueller, read the book. <laughs> we probably don't do enough of that. I think what we have to do is just really go over our campaigns very carefully. And um, there are ways here where we can be helped by watching where distribution has been. Uh, we just have to be honest with ourselves as publishers about what worked the last time and what didn't and why and uh, read the book, I suppose, and assuming one of the reasons that the performance on a book was the way it was, was the book itself. I guess as publishers, our job is to try and make it a better book. Could I add one thing Please. here? Uh, merchandising used to be building a big stack of books or building a number of big stacks of books. But in fact, if you can you now merchandise them in a different fashion, rather than a big stack of one history book, I'd rather have 200 different history titles in my section and merchandise the history section as if it was a serious section. And that's what's happening in the bookstore. Jack, if you would briefly. Jack Heft. Um, I really can't add, Dick, any more other than I think one point uh, in this that, yeah, I hear at my desk a lot that our salespeople can't sell the book or get the quantity out we want because of the author's uh, uh, earlier books. I think sometimes that may be an excuse. And what Brenda said and everything else is that you have to continue to use the creativity, et cetera, et cetera. What David said about merchandising, it's changing. He's right. It is changing. But I think the thing that is also changing, which in my opinion is really the revolution that we're ahead, is the amount of information and how quickly we can all use that information. And if we share it, I think it will help the merchandising, the creativity, and the author's second, third, and fourth book do better. Well, I, th I think, uh, maybe to sum up just the point, I, th I think Brenda said it best of all. Uh, publishers have to read the book that they publish. The sales force has to <laughs> read the book they publish. And they must maintain a credibility with the bookstore, so when they say they really believe in it, they really believe in it. And it isn't just to make this week's numbers. Uh, 
I have a non-computer question which I will direct <laughs> to Norman and Larry, which is the revolution in book selling has created many new opportunities for various forms of author promotions. Should authors agree to participate in promoting their books to a larger, excuse me, to a larger degree than they do now? After you, Mr. Mailer. <coughs> I, I'm afraid I'm in the same um, position again. I've always gone out on tours, publicity tours, to make my publisher happy. It's the only reason. I, I, I don't believe that. I believe there are a few authors who can sell their books through promoting them. A few. And they have to have special gifts, which often are not altogether agreeable. Uh, for example, Alexander King, remember him many years ago? He was wonderful at that. And there are a few others I, I can't name. But generally, it's really uh, an empty activity, except for the fact that it energizes the bookstores. It, it, it energizes the, the advanced publicity. They say the author's going on a tour. Actually, what goes on is anyone who watches, this is always true of all television programs, but on three quarters of the shows that you do get on, uh, anyone, uh, it, the odds against anyone ever reading a book who turns on that show are rather great. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, it could even have a negative effect. If they're slightly curious about you, they see you, you know, hungover at 8 o'clock in the morning with <laughs> huge bags under your eyes that pop through the makeup. And they say, oh, gee, I thought he was interesting, but I've lost all interest in him now. <laughs> so I think that as far as public relations go, um, I, think, I think the emphasis ought to be put on young authors. <laughs> young Norman. You're forever young, Norman. <laughs> Indeed. Larry. Um, I favor a classical division of labor in this regard. I believe that my job is to write the book, and I really believe that's my only job, and that it's the publisher's job to publish it and the bookseller's job to sell it, and it should be the bookseller that energizes the bookstore, not the author. I also have four bookshops, so I can speak from both sides of the fence here. Um, I, I think, Anne, you may have something to add to that, because I'm not sure the publishers would uh, totally agree. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, no. Uh, we need authors. Uh, we need authors in, in a, a lot of ways, not, not only going out on a tour. And I think uh, touring... on a tour about the third day when they call back and, and want to never write another book again. But uh, <clears throat> uh, on certain kinds of books, those kinds of tours will sell the book. That's what that gets the book going. The ideas are presented, so on and so forth. But the other way that we need authors is we, we, we need to be able to talk to authors about marketing ideas. Uh, the uh, Authors always think that they only should go out, only should have ads in the New York Times book review and things like that. And I think that uh, there are other more creative things that publishers and authors can do together aside from the, the classic advertising and classic tours. And uh, so it is important that authors know uh, in some ways, again, particularly in nonfiction, who their target audience is and how to reach it. And we need to work with them to get to those audiences. I think the real point that what I have found out in the industry over the years is that the only interesting thing in the, in, the, in the industry is the author, and that's why they have to go on it, too. They don't want the publishers of the bookstores. Larry, you want to comment? I just have one comment. We've heard 
quite a bit here tonight about the technique and the technology and to some extent the rhythm of book publishing and book selling. We haven't heard very much about the rhythm of writers. The unfortunate aspect in many cases of a writer promoting his or her own book is that the book is published almost always about a year after the writers finish the book. In this year, uh, if the writer has much momentum, be writing another book almost exactly at the time that the book that needs to be promoted is coming out. Also, in that year, the writer may well have turned off the book written last year and be the worst person in the world to promote it. I can hardly stand to talk about it by the time that you're supposed to be in the bookstores. That's the problem. Well, no, that's certainly right. I mean, you, you certainly, uh, <coughs> an author absolutely doesn't want to go out on tour, then you don't want to send them out because <laughs> it's a lot worse than. than right. And, and also, I mean, it, there are many times the books sell very well with, with no help from the authors at all. I mean, we, we just had a bestseller right now. The author spent the entire uh, fall season in England and refused to do um, any interviews or anything else, and it's uh, the number one book. So you don't absolutely need an author. Thank you, Ann. Um, the next two questions we're going to go very briefly and get to. I think one very interesting last question, and then we're going to open up the meeting to Q&A. Um, this question is, participating in the ABA and the many regional ABAs can be expensive and time-consuming for authors and publishers. How can they participate meaningful in all of these various professional groups to ensure that their books are noticed? Very briefly, Joyce. Well, I think the publisher can't afford not to. Uh, we need to nurture uh, the booksellers of all, of all different types of stores, um, small stores, medium stores, large stores, specialty stores. And it takes a lot of information to a lot of different outlets uh, to uh, sell books. If we don't have uh, participation in, in the convention, we lose a great deal in terms of the amount of information that is exchanged between the, the bookseller and the publisher and the creative juices that flow. The same thing that, hap that happens with the regional uh, shows and a sales force uh, that goes out and calls on as many accounts as possible. They can't touch them all, obviously. But we need to have many different vehicles, and all of them are every bit as important uh, to the information flow uh, to the bookstores so that they can provide the books to the readers. Jack Heft. Well, not speaking about anyone in specific, but conventions uh, in, in general, um, I think they're good. I think they have their place. And if we as publishers can communicate our message to those attending, it is good. The cost of these are becoming unbelievable. Um, and I think that publishers in the future will evaluate this on a year-to-year -year basis as to how productive each and every convention becomes for them. Uh, but I think that we will probably, just simply because of cost, have to see changes in, in the way we've done these in the past. Thank you, uh, Jack. Can I make a Please, positive no. suggestion for once? Please. It occurs to me, this is, this would be very hard to organize, but it might possibly work for a year or two as a fad and in the course of that sell a certain number of books, which is at a given time, why not send out a team of writers from different publishing houses? You get a bus <laughs> to save on the cost. But, you, it, but all right, I'm getting facetious again. But, but the fact of the matter is 
you could have, you could hit a town, you could really concentrate on a town, it would have a long-term investment. In other words, you could have five writers of every age going out together, their books happen to come out the same month, they appear in Detroit, in a Detroit literary festival. Why are you all still laughing? I'm now dead serious. But uh, what it might do is it might energize America over a year or two to the idea that certain cities be saying, why haven't we had our festival yet? <laughs> it's already happening in Miami. Yes. <laughs> no, it, you know, it's interesting that you say that because uh, the Australian Booksellers Association is just sponsoring a train that is going across Australia that is stopping at all these little outback stations and, and um, it's full of writers, for Australian writers. <laughs> and a lot of fosters. And I'm sure that they'll <laughs> save a seat for you. <laughs> well, the Australians are I, an active, great idea. energetic people. <laughs> Thank you. Let me get to uh, the next to last question, uh, which is booksellers are faced with the prospect of adding new forms of information to their product lines in the, 90, in the 1990s, graphic novels, audio tapes, video discs, CD-ROMs, and laser discs. Can the distribution channels currently in place accommodate these new formats? What role will publishing authors perform in supplying this demand, or as some have suggested, should they resist? Uh, Norman? <laughs> I think the true problem is getting people to read, uh, and I think it's deep. I, I think everything in, in the nature of the 20th century in its last decade moves against serious reading, or even reading. Uh, and going in this direction will probably increase the profits for a short term and cut our ankles off a little further. In other words, there will be that many fewer people reading before it's all over. Uh, after a while, the only way people will be able to read is if a certain machine is hooked up to them that's like a cattle prod. So if they don't read 100 words in a given number of seconds, they'll get a shot. <laughs> I, I'm against it. Uh, what I mean is I think, <laughs> whatever it is, I, I, think, I think publishing has to come to grips with a few truly serious problems, and the most serious of them all is that people are reading less and less seriously and with less and less pleasure, and this is a profound problem because it goes to the root of television. You, you know, one doesn't blow up the television station, so what does one do? And I don't know the answer, and I've been thinking about it for the last 20 years. Does anybody on the panel have a suggestion? Mr. I don't have a suggestion, but I'd like to sort of disagree with that one. Um, I don't quite understand the pessimism about reading. I travel this country from coast to coast all the time. I find more bookstores everywhere I go. In my own bookstores, I can hardly keep interesting books on the shelf. Every time I go away, I come back to this really, for me, depressing numbers of holes in, in, the, in the shelves. I speak at colleges. I find more literate kids than I would have found 10, 15 years ago everywhere I go. Um, and I don't understand that pessimism, and I think what we've heard here tonight to a, to a degree um, is a bunch of actually fairly spiritual people trying to make themselves practical. I do think the motivating force for most booksellers is spiritual, is an interest in literature, and they're trying, what we've heard here tonight is people trying to have that interest and at the same time not go broke. It may not be possible, but it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> There is one statistic that was in the opening remarks which still says that people are reading 20 more hours in 1991 than they did in 1971. And I think if you looked at the bestseller list, you'd see the same quality of books in 1971, 1991. 
Um, Mr. Heft, do you want to respond in about 30 seconds? On the technology? Sure. If, um, if that's yeah. the question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think from, from our company's point of view, uh, our core business is the book business. We are in the book business. Um, I, we, we have gone into audio cassettes, which we feel is an extension of our core business. But as far as the new technologies that Dick asked in his question, uh, I don't see us going into that area, uh, at least unless we're forced into it. And the reason I say I'm, we might be forced into it is something that concerns me very much as I travel to bookstores. Um, as non-book products become more prevalent and a bigger percentage of book selling space in this country, and I mean in the, in the bookstore, um, it's going to hurt the book publisher, it's going to hurt uh, the author, etc. Uh, I don't blame booksellers for trying to improve their margins, etc. by selling some non-book items. But if we get into this new technology, that is going to take space away from the book. And it's something that concerns us very much. Uh, this is a question to our last question before Q&A, and it's directed to both Mr. Mailer and Mr. McMurtry. question is, are agents su sufficiently knowledgeable about the new mechanics of publishing to effectively, effectively guide authors through the publishing process? Uh, uh, I've had one agent for uh, 25 years now, and uh, my answer to that is yes. I, I, he certainly knows an awful lot about it, and you can measure that by my ignorance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, income. <laughs> I, I've never had to learn all these things <laughs> I'm learning tonight. Thank you. I feel exactly the same way. I'd be very surprised if I have a right that Irving Lazar doesn't know how to sell and protect. But of course, we have two extremely good agents. Yes, my agent, by the way, is Scott Meredith. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they you know on Scott and Swifty. Um, does anybody from the panel wish to comment on that last question? No one was scheduled to do it because it's tough to answer <laughs> from the other perspective. And we'll just turn over the uh, meeting to the floor. And if you would just raise your hands, and we'll answer your questions. Lady back there, I can't. Can you see? Yes, please. would like to take that question. Well, I am not uh, uh, technically versed in, in all the uh, protocols that exist between go trying to go from uh, you know, a writer's uh, uh, disc directly into type and then into book, but it's something that we look at more and more frequently. Uh, it's no question that authors have been light years <coughs> ahead of, uh, of editors uh, in terms of uh, their word processing skills. They've, uh, I would say that the majority, if not the overwhelming majority, 
of our writers are currently uh, using word processors to, uh, to varying degrees. Uh, and I think they would love to, uh, to be ability to cut short the process and simplify the process. And I think it's, it is uh, the mission of publishers looking out over the next, uh, next few years to find a way that they can uh, upgrade their capabilities in-house, try to educate their, their, their staff to be able to work with DISCs and, and cut out some of the unnecessary costs involved in production. After all, I mean, there's no, there's no fundamental reason why once a word is, is keystroked into a computer by a writer that it has to be keystroked in again into another computer uh, at a compositor shop. It's a, it's a fundamentally inefficient and costly uh, way of doing business, and that's, that's money that we could use in any number of ways to, uh, to uh, improve, improve the way we do business, to, to publish more books even, and to, uh, and to hopefully sell more books. Um, so the bottom line is, I think uh, it's something we, in trade publishing at least, are very keen on making happen, but we're up against several very, very human obstacles, uh, not technological. And I think as, as, as long as this is a people-driven business, which it certainly is, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult to uh, coordinate that kind of massive change overnight. But it's something that we're looking at very steadily. Now, I do know that in reference publishing and professional publishing, uh, the nature of the work that is performed by editors is much more consistent with uh, being able to go directly uh, from author's disk into type. And uh, perhaps they have some valuable lessons that could adapt themselves. But I do think that, technologically speaking, the software is there, the hardware is there. It's just it takes the will and the, and the creativity to make it happen. I, th I think if I could just augment that a bit. And at least in Simon Schuster, by the end of this year, 100% of our school publishing will, all, will be <coughs> completely electronic. And we will then migrate that to college. And then we will then do all our trade publishing electronically. It'll, that technology exists. It's just a matter of employing it. Um, I'm sorry. Right there. I can't see, so if I don't recognize yeah, it. Excuse me. Well, I can take that one just real quickly in a one-sentence one. The fact is, is that it still does work. It's just trying to answer that question that I think Charlie Hayward always asks. How long is it going to be before I can, how much longer do I have to print 200,000 to sell 100,000? I mean, you still are very much in that business. I don't know, Jack or? Go ahead, Tom. Well, I think uh, it's a mistake to confuse levels of risk with the absolute numbers. The fact of the matter is it's possible to engage in very aggressive publishing of brand name best-selling authors at uh, relatively modest levels of risk uh, uh, compared to even the way you have to publish certain mid-list authors. Uh, I think every title has to be approached individually uh, with regard to weighing the risks versus the benefits of how you go about publishing uh, that author. Not every best-selling author is so leveraged with marketing dollars that, uh, that it's inherently unprofitable. That is, is not necessarily true. So it does work, and I think it is, it is uh, here to stay. I think there's been a speed up in the culture generally that that makes people want to own 
uh, a book in hardcover that they pr uh, previously may have waited for in mass market, and that accounts for a good share of where these awesome numbers are coming from for certain, for certain authors, and that's something we shouldn't fly from, but it's something we should, we should make, uh, make use of, and I believe we are making use of it. Um, the, the question for every publisher, I believe, is, is striking the right balance across the entire list. I think it's, it's uh, necessary to make the big books help, help pay for the small books so that, uh, so that ultimately your business is running profitably uh, across the board. And I, think to, to, and I think most publishers would agree that that's the way they approach their business, that they don't try to look in isolation at, at only the big books. And of course, we all love to see those uh, brand names up on the bestseller list as high as they can possibly get. But uh, to, be a, to be an effective publisher, you also have to get the, the creative uh, uh, thrill of taking uh, uh, a first-time novelist to, uh, to a level that is beyond your expectations, or to take a second-time novelist uh, up a notch. That's and building a career that way. We get as, I guarantee you we get as much pleasure from that as we do from the big home runs we hit with our brand name authors. Let me come at it just quickly because I know there are a lot of other questions. I think one of the things you said, you know, high advances, large advances, and so forth. Um, there's a comp there's that, that is a competitive marketplace. And as Jack said, as Brenda said, I mean, when you put your list together, you have to have a little of everything. And you try to well balance or to, to make it as well balanced as possible. Um, and uh, in that competitive marketplace, if you want that book, you have to go after it. Thank you. Gentlemen? I think you ought to talk to Norman about this one myself. Um, no, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. No, I, but I, I do have an answer. Yes? Uh, years ago, Harold Strauss of Knopf started a list of Japanese novelists before uh, anyone had any interest whatsoever in, in uh, the Japanese novel. I remember when he had Yukio Mishima, Mishima on his list, and he said to me, this is a wonderful author. And I said, oh, yes, really? Well, that's interesting. But the fact is they did Knopf, I don't know whether they ever made any money on it as such, but they did add to their renown in that period after about 10 years. They were very respected for their Japanese list. Hmm. And it seems to me that there's no reason why one of the bigger publishers couldn't sure. afford to, uh, with some of those huge uh, profits you're talking about, yes. uh, well, couldn't afford well, I'm, to I'm, uh, have a list of, of Russian writers because part of the function of literature, it seems to me, over the next 10 and 20 years is to get some idea of what really went on in the Soviet Union over the last 50 years, because we don't have a clue. 
you know, we had only our distorted notion of it, and we weren't at all prepared for the end of communism and the possible resurgence of it. And, uh, uh, and one of the reasons is that we had no knowledge of Russian culture as such. So I, I think we perform an invaluable uh, function. In other words, publishers can do things pro bono also. Yeah, Norm Norman, I couldn't say that any better myself. I mean, that was exactly the <laughs> way as a publisher I would say it. If I could try to answer your question directly, there are a number besides major publishers, if you would like to, I mean, any major publisher, um, I would assume that uh, if you're represented here in New York, whatever, you could contact a major publisher. But if you're looking only for the sales part of it, there are a number of companies that are presently in business that specifically sell for small publishers, uh, if they're impressed with the book, um, and uh, any of the trade magazines uh, have these companies. They constantly have uh, advertising, but that would, I think, be your answer if you don't want to work with, say, a larger publisher. Perhaps after the meeting you might ask Jack and he'll give him your card and he will send you a list of those publishers. Sure. Any other questions, please? Down in the black. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. No, that's all right. If you would stand up, I think we can hear better. Thank you. that's against the law, <laughs> if I may answer that question quickly. Strip books do not help anyone in this business, including the reader, in my opinion. Hardcover remainders is a different ballgame. I mean, our company is in the BDD promotional book company. We do sell remainders, we buy remainders, and we sell remainders. But in that entire process, the author, the publisher, and the bookseller all take advantage of that form of a book, if, we, if, if I may call a remainder a form of a book. But I'll tell you, one of the things that upsets me the most, and I can, people on the panel know I jump to the microphone very quick, I think strip books is, is terrible, and if this industry doesn't get together and work on that, we're going to have real deep trouble, and we're not going to be worried about computers. That must be one of those great overprintings and yeah, <laughs> straight out of there. <laughs> That, that's actually been done on a number of cases. There are a, a number of trade publishers. Yes, uh, and, uh, 
that that has been done on a number of uh, cases. Uh, Crown did that just recently in the last two years with a very extensive fiction list of new of new writers. They gave added discount. Uh, often there are added uh, advertising dollars. Uh, I can uh, I can know a number of cases in which that has occurred. Uh, it's not been particularly successful. If I can just add, one, we have, besides, uh, you know, as, as uh, uh, David has said, redu publishers reducing or increasing discounts, increasing advertising dollars, we have even done with some first-time authors or, let's say, popular paperback authors, converting them to hardcover <coughs> authors, where we have reduced the price significantly, cut our margins to go out at a, at a higher price. But as David has said, sometimes it works, but most times it has not worked. I think as important as the publisher adapting a book in that way, it really is at the bookseller level, especially when you're talking about that first writer. And I think the ki kinds of things that happen at the bookstore are much more impressive than anything that a publisher can do. I mean, I think we should give B. Dalton. I think B. Dalton, with their new program, Discovery, they, they have done a marvelous job, which is what you're talking about. Many first-time authors uh, where they give them prime real estate right in front of the store. Um, they've done a lot of point of sale, a lot of advertising. Uh, I think they should be given a lot of credit for exactly what you're asking. Why? The disc is just the byproduct of the machine. It doesn't, there's no extra effort on your part. It also then prints out and you can correct it. But right. actually with the technology available, it's all right if you don't want to use a computer. We can, we can scan it into a computer, so don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, Aster? <laughs> Jack Heft, do you want to answer that again? <laughs> I'll have to ask our publishers uh, that question. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, myself personally, um, you know, we're publishing uh, in excess now of probably uh, 3,000 new books a year. Um, I'll be honest with you, I don't get a chance to read a lot of them. Well, speak, at our can company, you speak up, because we can't hear you. There's another question. Who do who do I depend upon? Uh, I mean, uh, I am the chief operating officer of the group. Uh, we have three presidents and publishers who develop their own publishing list, their own publishing programs uh, within Bantam, within Doubleday, and within Dell Delacort. Um, that and their judgment uh, are the ones that we, as a company, rely on very heavily. Working for them, obviously, are the editors. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as we structure our publishing uh, uh, companies. Um, I would estimate that our publishers read a very, very large percentage of every major book that we publish, and probably many of the first-time authors, because that is a gamble, is the same as spending a lot of money for a big novel. Um, I, I don't want to put a percentage, but I would say that if Linda Gray, Carol Barron, or Steve Rubin were here tonight, they would uh, probably say that they read a very, very large percentage. I don't know if anybody else wants to try that one. Uh, 
Um, I'll, I'll put it this way. You may disagree, but I will say that I think that at least in our company's point of view that our quality is pretty darn good. Um, and I have to say that that is based upon the heads of those three publishing areas. Um, and again, I would say that they read the entire books, and probably in some cases they read it more than once because they read it at acquisition stage and make that decision and they may after the final edit and after everything has been done if there is a lot of editing that has to be done. But again, I can't give you percentages and do they read every book. Um, no. Hester? A strip book is a paperback book or a trade paperback, in other words, the oversized large, thank you, Esther, or a mass market book where the cover has been torn off. For those of you that don't know, when we sell a book, a mass market or a trade paperback, to a customer, whether it's distributor or retail, if they cannot sell that, they do not return the entire book. They only return the cover, and they are to destroy the body of the book at the point of separation of cover from book. If you see um, books that do not have the cover on, in most cases what you're looking at is one uh, stolen property and the cover has probably been returned for full credit and someone else is making a profit off of that book and it is definitely not the publisher, it is not the author, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that the, if I may, from the AAP uh, uh, paperback group, we will be, uh, four publishers have already agreed of the 11 members uh, to put a statement uh, very similar to what you see on video cassettes. When you get it in the FBI, will come and raid your house if you tape this thing. <laughs> um, but we will be putting, because there is no such statement on a book, and that will be, be being put on the copyright page. Thank you, though. I think by the year 2000, every book that's published will be famous for 15 minutes. <laughs> I think what's what the answer to that question is that of the independent booksellers who are using computers and who are, in fact, buying less books up front have more capital to keep those books in the store. So they're more likely to keep those books, and that's what's happening with me. At one time, as you mentioned in the in the in the last few years with being under enormous amount of pressure to return those stacks of books that we're not selling, I returned them all. Now, in fact, without that pressure, I'm able to keep that individual or that second book in the, in, in, in the store a much longer period of time, and I think that will change for the, for the positive. Yeah, I would concur completely with David. 
But I think the two of you are unusual that way. I, one of my worries as everything gets more computerized and uh, stores are more and more concerned about turn is that they'll only be concerned about the turn of the inventory. So if they see that a book is not selling that quickly and, and they can see it more, more immediately now, it will be returned faster. And I don't think that does us justice. I, I, I don't think that we are the slaves of our computer. Uh, we're, we're looking at the, you, we operate by sections as Joyce does, and you look at your individual section, you see how, this, how the book is selling in a section, how the whole section is selling, and in fact, it's, a, it's an intellectual decision. It's not one just dedic, uh, you know, dictated by the banker. Yeah, but I, I, David, I, I have to agree with Ann. I mean, you two, your two companies are, are an exception, I think, to the rule here. And the two computer systems that are presently, let's say, the leading computer systems being sold and utilized by booksellers today make um, returning books considerably easier than, say, in the old days because it gives you at least uh, the information. And I think that when you combine all booksellers, if I may, just for this discussion, from chains, the largest chains, the medium, to the independent retailer, I think, at least at our company, we're seeing shelf life somewhere between three and six weeks. And if this baby isn't flying, it's coming back. And, you know, we used to say that we would begin to estimate returns after six months. From the date of publication, I won't even say that, from the date of on sale, we would begin to see returns at six months. Today, it's two and a half, three months, and we're starting to get returns back that we can estimate where a book will be. Now, that to me tells me that we are getting shorter shelf life. It may be a combination of more books being published and not enough room. You can only put so much in a paper bag. I mean, eventually, you know, something has to give, and I understand that. But I think that it is a fact today that books have a shorter shelf life than, say, they did five or ten years ago. I'm looking down the row. I guess it's me again. Uh, I keep. Um, if I understood your question correctly, is that mass market for the last 10 years has either been flat or down, and is anybody uh, trying to develop a plan to buck that trend? We've tried to do it for the last 10 years. Okay. I mean, it's uh, yes. I mean, we, we are working at it. I mean. I, I think there are a lot of problems. Um, I, I think we've touched on it up here that as the hardcover or the mass market hardcover became more prevalent in this country, prices because of discounting, those prices were reduced, um, the remainder marketplace and so forth. I think all of those things have affected the mass market paperback book because it's no longer 95 cents. Um, you know, you're talking probably the major best-selling uh, paperback books are sitting at 495. 595, um, and some of them hitting 695. You're getting very close to a 1995 trade pay or a hardcover book that is discounted 35 or 40 percent. Um, do you want to wait a year for a book that you want, or do you want to spend a few dollars extra? I think those points are, are some of the many that are affecting the mass market. The other piece with the mass market is that the actual shelf life, but shelf space of mass market books which are very dependent upon the wholesaler, the ID wholesale community as far as the total amount. Um, we have lost as an industry space in that part of our business. Supermarkets are carrying less, drugstores are carrying less, not only are they carrying you know, less titles, but less per pocket 
They're cutting their inventories as well. So we have a lot of very negative factors. Um, but I still feel that, that mass market books are very viable, and I think that the key to them in the future is going to be the pricing that we do on hardcover and uh, trade books as to how mass market books will be affected. Roy? I think that's more a statement than a question, so we'll go on. Well, obviously, book selling is an aspect of, uh, or just one aspect of getting books to the ultimate consumer. The other avenues are also effective. Some have greater potential than others, Roy. Uh, where's the person I missed over there before has been raising her hand? No? One more? Lady in green? <coughs> and the question of acid paper and the crumbling away of books that are printed on acid paper, I wonder if the channel or, or yourself would address, I, I heard a while back about the coming of the computer chip book. And I'm also aware of the problem of acid paper that will crumble away in the library. Is that something the industry would want so that, that there would be more books mm. to sell? Or mm. I mean, what is the, the situation about cost-effective non I think it's a question that the publishers were unaware that the books were going to crumble when they printed them 40, 50 years ago, about a year and a half ago. Publishers all came to an agreement and to print their hardcover books on acid-free paper. You can't go back and change the past. Uh, Sony is more, that's what you mean by Sony is going to bring into the United States something called Discman which on a very small disk you can basically get a dictionary, get a novel. Whether that will work or not, I don't know. Probably to a certain degree. I think that the small presses have been vitally important to, to bookstores, and um, we look increasingly for new ways to market small press books. Uh, as the market broadens, there are more bookstores, more specialty stores. I think the small press It would, it would seem over the last few years that the small presses in some ways have been the salvation okay. of the book business and the fact that they have, have been extremely successful. Uh, 
in that they filled in the holes where the major publishers have decided not to publish. Uh, I think that they have a very favorable reading by the bookseller. The problem with the small press is that they are often very uneconomical for us to sell because we, there, are, there are a few number of books, a few books in the cart and very expensive to get them, inadequate discounts, very bad return policies, uh, so that it becomes a problem. The job, is, the job is to distribute a number of small presses rather effectively and efficiently when the small press cannot do it for itself. Would you agree with that? Yes, there are collectives okay. that distribute small presses. I think I'm correct in my statistics that there are many more publishers today than there were 10 years ago. I believe I am correct in that. We're going we're gonna to come down now to th three last questions. So. Straight ahead down there. It doesn't actually have to. I've been running, I think Simon & Schuster has been running with me nine or ten months. Uh, in the case of, say, an instant book, if there's a calamity of some sort and they want a book on it, they can get it very quickly. But uh, because they print catalogs, uh, you know, they have sales conferences, there is a rhythm and a scheduling to publishing and the normal time is uh, slightly less than a year. In which time, the author is usually ready to start another book. That will change with the electronic uh, manuscript development. There you are, okay. <laughs> I think that the best publishers are the publishers, in fact, who, who use, um, rather than, than promotion and rather than advertising, but are really marketing publishers. And the publishers who do, who spend the time uh, cultivating the, the, the niches on their list, who cultivate the individual authors on their list, who bring out, uh, who republish those authors, who pay attention to the individual markets that those, that those authors have. And there are a number of American publishers that do that, and doing it, I think, better and better. Uh, I, I'll mention only one. I'll the, there's a uh, Carl Lennerance, who's the marketing director for with a, a marketing merchandise person with Random House, does a, a newsletter uh, uh, every several several weeks and points out enormous. Uh, he points out trends, picks individual titles, uh, spends a, a great deal. Of, personal time citing uh, special experiences in, in, in the publishing world, and that, I think, is enormously successful. Either they call you up or they, or, or they send it to you through the mail, or the sales reps present you that material. You can identify the publishers that are concerned. They're, they're very apparent. And publishers who... 
I wouldn't. I, I, I wouldn't say that. I, mean, I would say. I don't there think are he would say that at all. <laughs> <laughs> he won't get off the stage. And publishers whose advertising policies are not title specific, but allow the bookseller the leeway to uh, promote a mid-list book through. Um, uh, using co-op dollars that would be collected over the course of, of the year. Okay, we're down to our last question. Gentleman right back. Well, publishers like to point with pride to books on their list. Uh, Nick Snyder recently made a very courageous and wise decision uh, that perhaps could be thought of by a few other publishers. Uh, to what extent are the publishers represented here trying to follow uh, decisions that this kind of follow this time in the future so that what appears on What you do? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> he read the book. <laughs> I think we ought to stop right there. I think uh, each publisher must answer that for themselves, and we only have one other publisher up here, so I don't think that's kind of. Oh, we have two. I'm sorry, excuse me, but I think that's an eternal point. I think it's time to stop. I'd like to thank. <laughs> I knew I was going to pick the wrong one. <laughs> You look so benign. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Dick, that was a plant and you know it. I mean, you know, it was the last one in the room. It was Roger Rosenblatt was sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd like to, first of all, just thank our panel for their participation. Thank, again, uh, National Book uh, Week and <coughs> AAP and PAN. And I think I, if I could just sum up, because <clears throat> I think I can, and, and once if, if you want to just refer to the topic why we're here, which is the coming revolution in American best uh, book selling, and can find this comment and summation to that, I think in just listening to our good panel and uh, our, our wonderful authors, that I might just say, and I think this does sum it up, for the sake of literature, the answer to the book publishing community is technology, technology, technology. With that, I thank you very much. My legs full of more. I was going to die. Well, I'm in over my How are you? I was just cut taste. to that. I think, I don't think it's that impossible. It depends on the way in which the books fail, in a sense. Uh, I always... What about paperbacks? See, what saved me was paperbacks, because I didn't sell all in hardback, I did fairly well in paperbacks. And you look terrific. You look younger than the last time I saw you. And the time Bell, how are you? Bell, you know, Mr. Well, they are being reissued. This is Bell's they are all in print. 
they all, there's a copyright problem on the first. They, they've reissued all the ones that I control. They've reissued all the ones that I control with new introduction by me, starting backward from Desert Rose, and they've now worked back to moving on. No, they worked back to the last picture show, which they published in Harbeck. They don't, we can't get the first two. I don't own them. The original publisher still on Pennsylvania? You know, I have a new friend there, Harper and